0: All right, we're in Ezekiel 34. If you want to open your Bibles, we'll take a look at that passage tonight. A study I'm calling sheep-wrecked. Oh, that's so cute. Sheep are the most frequently mentioned animal in the Bible. And those who care for them, the shepherds, appear in approximately 100 Bible passages Many of the most prominent people in the Old Testament were shepherds, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, David, and uh, the prophet Amos. Both Moses and David were men whose shepherding skills were honed in the wilderness on sheep so they could properly care for, or shepherd, if you will, God's people. The metaphor of being a shepherd to God's people is used in the New Testament as well, of course, Ezekiel 34 is all about shepherding. The Lord will compare the leaders of Israel in the 6th century to false, cruel shepherds who put their own needs ahead of His people. Then God will introduce the true shepherd of Israel who will be revealed in the last days. And so let's pick up the the story uh, in chapter 34, uh, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed. Those who were sick, nor bound up the broken nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Now from our brief survey of the Old Testament a moment ago, you see that shepherding was held in high regard by the Jews. There are cultures, uh, uh, you might remember in going through the book of uh, Genesis, uh, that uh, when Pharaoh is going to meet Joseph's family and help uh, them, uh, they say, hey, you know, they don't really like shepherds. They consider shepherds a, a pretty poor profession. Uh, and so, but in Israel, uh, shepherds were very highly esteemed, held in high regard. And so it would not be uh, offensive at all to say that citizens were as sheep and the leaders, both civil and religious, are the shepherds. And when we're talking about shepherds here, He intends to be talking about all the leaders of Israel, whether they're the kings, uh, the governors, or the priests and the Levites. It's everybody that had the leadership uh, there, both civil and religious. Now, God, though, is comparing the actions of Israel's leaders to those of the worst shepherds. And so, though it wouldn't offend them to be compared sheep and shepherds, they would immediately understand this You know, I mean, this would grab them and they'd think, wow, our leaders, or as a leader, I'm a terrible shepherd. Uh, I was thinking about those hidden camera reveals, like, you know, when you think your babysitter is doing something weird, you know, to your children, and then they, have you seen those, you know, and they put the camera up and then, you know, you watch as the babysitter is brutalizing the kid and stuff. And I'm thinking all the time, you know, if you think your babysitter is doing something weird to your kids, how about better safe than sorry? You know, forget the camera and just get another baby. But that's a whole other thing. But that, you know, this is kind of, it's like, you know, this government's going on. The, this is Israel day by day. And, you know, like everything, it probably deteriorated over a period of time. and You know, things don't just happen overnight. Everybody kind of gets into the flow. This is the way the government is. The leadership is corrupt. What are you going to do about it? All that. And then God finally gives this big reveal and he says, hey, I'm going to show you what this is really like. This is like a shepherd who is out just taking advantage of the sheep, killing the sheep himself for his own good, using the wool for himself, not going after the lost sheep. And and now it would be appalling to actually see it when, you know, a lot of times people they're doing stuff. Uh, and, and then when it's revealed, it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's pretty bad. Um, now, that, now that I look at it, now it's pretty bad. So God is exposing the leaders for all to see their true character. Verse 5, So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. On at least two occasions, we've had dogs that we love get lost. Anybody have a dog just break out, and get? I mean, it's it's kind of it's heartbreaking. It's just uh, I remember uh, Kobe, Kobe the Wonder Dog. Uh, he broke through a fence of a friend of ours. We uh, this is down in Riverside. We left him there for them to watch him while we went somewhere. He broke through their fence and he was just gone, lost in Southern California. You know. And uh, we had kind of given up hope on him, but one day, because I worked in Riverside, I thought, well, I'll I'll try the pound this one last time. And there he was, you know. And he just looked so pathetic, you know. When you find your lost dog in the pound, and so pathetic, and you know, kennel cough. If you ever experienced, how many of you experienced kennel cough? It's it's wonderful. Uh, You know, he's diseased and he's dirty, and, and you just wonder what did that poor animal go through you know, out in the wilderness of Riverside, you know, and stuff. How do they even live, you know, and stuff? But uh, so God is talking about his people in those kinds of terms. They they were scattered and, and just, you know, wiped out. Now, with the Babylonian captivity upon them, the dispersion of the Jews around the world for centuries to come had begun. Yes, they returned. They rebuilt the temple. Uh, Then there was Herod's temple and all that. But really, with this dispersion by Babylon, the Jews never really did regain the promised land. They never became an independent nation very much at all. And that's existing to this day. I mean, from 70 A.D. forward, uh, they haven't even had a temple uh, and they've been dispersed all over the world. Uh, Verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, Surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd nor did my shepherd search for my flock but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against the shepherds and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. By the way, we won't talk too much about this, but if you've been here for any of the studies, you know what's happening. It's the time of the Babylonian captivity. The uh, armies of Babylon had come for the third time. This time they completely destroyed Jerusalem. They they burned down the temple and they take the people. Now, Jeremiah had been telling in his prophecies, go along with it. This is God's plan everything can be all right. You're going, to be a, you're going to be all right in Babylon if you just go along with this. Uh, and a lot of them did, finally. Uh, and so one of the things we would say is that um, the Babylonian captivity and, and all this, it did get the people out from under the, the terrible leadership, uh, the carnal, uh, godless leadership that they had. God said, well, I'm going I'm to, at the same time, remove your shepherds because all of your leaders are corrupt and carnal. Uh, and then in Babylon, they end up with people like Daniel who become de facto leaders, uh, spiritual men who are reading the Scriptures and can tell them what is going on. I love that passage in Daniel. It's such an important passage where Daniel is reading Jeremiah and God reveals to him the days of the Babylonian captivity, that they will be 70 years. And, and Daniel gets all excited and he starts to pray. And get ready for the captivity to be over. It's also very important for uh, the reason that when we see Daniel reading Bible prophecy, he read it as if it were literal. As Jacob was saying, he didn't read that and think, oh, God says we're going to be in captivity 70 years. I wonder what that means. I wonder what years represents there. Maybe great eons of time. Uh, maybe just a, a mindset or a, an inclination. No, he looked at that and he thought, wow, the Babylonian captivity is almost over. It's almost the end of the 70 years. So, anyway, God arranged uh, one of the positive benefits of the Babylonian captivity was that God got them out from under the oppression of this. Now, obviously, they were in under an oppressive government, the Babylonians. They were exiles and captives. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar is the kind of guy, if you left him alone, he left you alone. I mean, it, he was a despot. He was a, you know, a dictator. Uh, but uh, you know, he, he ran a tight ship. And he, wasn't, he, he, he didn't want to destroy the Jews. He just wanted them to know their place. They kept rebelling against him. And so he kept putting them down. When they were finally cu- cut down as far as they could go, they began to live prosperously in Babylon. That's just their history. Uh, so, anyway... This is what God had already done as Jerusalem felt in Nebuchadnezzar, verse 10. But it is also a universal decree of how God eventually deals with selfish shepherds who prey upon his precious saints. Now, looking at this from our perspective, from the use of the metaphor in the New Testament, uh, trying to make application, we find a greater emphasis, I think, on the role of feeding the flock of God uh, than, uh, you know, in terms of what a shepherd does. Peter draws out this in a couple of ways. First of all, in Jesus' post-resurrection talk with Peter on the beach over breakfast, the Lord told Peter, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Then Peter picked up on this and in his own writing said, Feed the flock of God which is among you. That's 1 Peter 5.2. Now the word for feed in 1 Peter can be translated shepherd, and thus it encompasses much more than just the teaching of the Word of God. Peter, however, himself interpreted it to have a primary application to study and teaching of the Bible. When confronted in the book of Acts with the needs of the neglected widows, Peter uttered his famous phrase, It is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And then Paul also made this clear in Ephesians. He said the leaders, he was talking about evangelists and pastor teachers, he says you have a responsibility to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry by teaching the Bible to them. Now, I was thinking about this. This sometimes comes across the wrong way, you know, and, and, and uh, as if, well, the pastor... Or, you know, the Bible study leader, uh, the elder, that's the person that just studies the Bible and teaches the Bible. And they don't really do anything, you know. Uh, and and why don't they do more than that? Uh, and they're kind of lazy and, you know, that kind of a thing. And it almost makes people feel inferior. And I was thinking, I said, you know, uh, this is really the body at work. The, all P- Peter is saying is thats is that it, it, it isn't. We want to use the same metaphor, shepherd and sheep, but it kind of brings everybody closer. It says, yeah, there is a shepherd. There are shepherds in the sense that there are those who feed the flock because everything really has its basis in the Word of God. But the sheep are elevated to the point where they're doing something. What are they doing? They're doing the work of the ministry in the ways that they are gifted. And so the the real properly run church is a church where everybody is engaged, everybody is involved, everybody is ministering. And if, if one person wants to step out and say, well, you know, I want to do this, I'm not gifted to do it, I'm not called to do it, but this person thinks I ought to do it, well, that's not the Lord. I mean, let the people who are gifted do the ministry. Uh, and and uh, now, what's happened in America over the years is that we have, we have developed a, uh, a kind of, a, it's almost a Protestant Catholicism if it, as it were, where in the Catholic faith that I grew up in, the Catholic tradition, there were priests and nuns and bishops and all these really holy people and then there was a giant chasm uh, and then on the other side of that chasm were just ordinary people normal people who went to church and and could never really be spiritual and didn't really do anything uh, except maybe be moral maybe not you know and there was this huge gulf and part of the protestant reformation was to change all that but we still have this huge gulf between the minister and the ministry and the people we still talk about lay people uh, I even use the term, you know, there's the pastor and the lay people. It's almost derogatory. And in reality, the truth is, we're all in this ministry together. We're all equal. We're all in it together. We're ministering. It's just people have different roles. And they have different responsibilities, and they have different giftings, and they have different callings. Uh, but in America, we think, you know, it's developed on, on churches that don't really teach through the Word of God. It's like, well, we have... Uh, you know, a, a, a pastor who does all that, or a minister who does all that, or a deacon who does all that, or a, an elder who does all that. And so anything that comes up, it's like, well, that's the, the job of the official ministry. You know, I, and my job is to pick up the phone and call the official ministry. And then I see, I turn that around. My job is to call you and tell you the ministry. You know, it's like, hey, you would be perfect for this. So-and-so has this need. This is happening over here. This ministry is being raised up. Who would be perfect for that? Who has God raised up? And isn't that wonderful? Isn't it great? Isn't it neat to all be working together as the body? And so when we talk tonight about you know, the shepherd and the sheep and all that, it's, it's different in the New Testament uh, in that, yes, we can use that metaphor and it's a precious metaphor... But there's, there's more of a camaraderie. There's more of a closeness. It, there isn't a distance between us. And, and what we're to be about is doing the work of the ministry. And all of us need to be honest about what our gifts and our callings really are. Uh, not always what we want to do, but what we're called to do, what we're gifted to do. And then be set free to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And man, when that happens, uh, ministry takes place. Uh, it's, it's really marvelous to see. And uh, I, we have that kind of church. And I love that. I wanted to stop and explain that a little bit tonight because I realized for years when I'd hear studies, I'd think, wow, well, it sounds, I'm not really, you know, maybe you didn't think this way, but I thought, you know, there seems like there, we're always building more distance between us, between different areas and different things in the ministry. And, and I don't think it's supposed to be that way. We're all equal, we just have different roles and responsibilities. Uh, you look at your home, the marriage. Uh, women are usually ten times more spiritual than their husbands. Uh, in my case, maybe five times more spiritual. But, uh, and yet God continues to say, Husband, you're the head of that home. You're the leader of that home. Lead. You know, Wife, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Uh, And and there's roles and responsibilities that we have. And we see they they work when we apply that. You know, children, obey your parents, all of that. Same thing in the church. Uh, We just need to find our place and do the thing that the Lord has called us to do. Um, Now, God next began to speak of himself, of himself rather, as their shepherd. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I'll bring them to their own land. I'll feed them in the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture. Their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel." I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen that which was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Now, I take these verses to relate mostly to what God will do in the future in what we call the millennial kingdom on the earth that Jesus will establish at His second coming. Uh, millennial comes from the latin "milli annum thousand years you read about it in revelation chapter 20 where over and over and over again uh, we see after jesus second coming he establishes a kingdom for a thousand years i think the word thousand is repeated maybe seven different times in those few verses to give you the idea that this is a real literal coming of jesus a kingdom on earth for a thousand years the present gathering of Israel to her ancient homeland and the arrival every day of new Jews from all over the earth, that's obviously a necessary precursor in the last days that will eventually uh, culminate with the last days events you read about and then the coming of Jesus. And so, uh, so we are looking here beyond our own time to the time God says, I am back as their shepherd and they are totally in the land, grazing, lying down, all of that. We're in the millennium as we read these verses. Now, we can learn something about good shepherding by listing the I wills in this section. Uh, We we want to be good shepherds, good uh, you know, in terms of having the same character that God has. He says, first of all, I will bring them out. This reminds us that all non-believers need to be brought out from the world, from darkness, into God's light of salvation. And so we would say that really good shepherding begins with sharing the good news. In context, God is talking about bringing his people, Israel, back into the land, but as good New Testament shepherds, all of us taking this role now as in the Good Commission, we have to recognize there are people that are outside the promises of God. They are outside the church. They've never been saved. They've never been born again. They need to hear this life-saving message that though they are sinners, there is a Savior and His name is Jesus Christ. Uh, their own righteousness will fail them. There are no works of righteousness that I can do by which I could ever commend myself to God or be perfect before God. And so God had to come as a man and say, I will take your place on the cross, give you my righteousness, take your sin upon myself. And in that transaction, when you believe that, your sins are forgiven, you'll be born again. And so we want to be shepherds in the sense or have the character of a shepherd thinking that people need to be brought out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. Then he says, I will feed them. Well, that speaks of the need to keep the Bible foundational. Not just to teach people the Word of God. Yes, that's true. But we must work hard to keep the Bible foundational. We must defend the authority of Scripture. And more than that, we must believe it is all we need for life and godliness as we teach it to others. And so uh, there's always a battle for the Bible. In every generation, Satan is going to come against the Word of God with false doctrines, with heresies within the church. So we have to keep the Bible foundational, uh, and, and we have to always uh, uphold its authority. And really, when you use the word authority, it includes the things that we talk about, inerrancy, uh, inspiration, Uh, those infallibility that is all under the idea of it's authoritative because it is all of those other things Uh, and we have to believe when people are coming at us from all sides and saying the Bible is not enough for the troubles of a modern heart and a modern culture uh, we have to believe what Peter says that everything that we need for life and godliness is in the Bible now you want to study mathematics the Bible doesn't deny mathematics. It's always mathematically accurate. But you, you need a math book. You want to study some other things. You, God has given us general revelation that we can explore from a Christian point of view. And we can learn a lot. Uh, 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 but when we're talking about the heart, the human spirit, uh, God has spoken on that. He who divides between the soul and the spirit, he's the one that knows uh, everything that we need to know and has given all that in the Word of God. And, and this is a huge fight. Every generation, there's always some ism or some ology that comes against the Bible. In our generation so far, it's been psychology. Uh, and, and the theories of godless men like Freud and Jung and Rogers and Maslow and B.F. Uh, Skinner who say, there is no God or we hate God and we're going to destroy any notion of God, uh, and here's what we've discovered about the human being, and then Christians come along and they say, well, that sounds scientific, that sounds reasonable. Uh, It does, that a godless, God-hating man would come up with a theory about the human heart that is better than what God has told us in His Word? I I don't get that, but we, we give in to that all of the time, and so we need to be careful about these things. I will seek what was lost, etc. Speaks to us by way of application of going after those who have wandered away with the goal of restoring them. And then he says, I will destroy the fat and the strong. That's a warning to us that we not prey upon God's people for our own personal interest or gain. Verse 17, as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and And goats, is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture, and to have drunk of the clear waters, that you must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. Now this is reminiscent of the famous sheep and goat judgment we read about in Matthew 25. This would occur at the second coming of Jesus to the earth in the waning hours of the seven year great tribulation. The lean sheep are obviously those saved individuals who survive the terrible persecution of those days. They enter in their normal human bodies into the millennial kingdom. The fat sheep here would refer to non-believers, those who persecuted the believers on the earth during the tribulation. They are sent away to await final judgment after the millennial kingdom. Why does the Lord talk about sheep and sheep and not sheep and goats like he does in Matthew 25? Well, you have to remember these are metaphors. Here in Ezekiel, God is staying true to the overall metaphor of the shepherd and his sheep. There's been no mention of goats up to this point and so it would just be weird to interject it here. In Matthew 25, Jesus is describing the same end of the tribulation event, but he uses a slightly different, starker contrast. And so uh, it, it's not unusual to describe the same thing from two different aspects. Uh, we're definitely talking about the final judgment at the second coming of the Lord. Verse 23, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. David, He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I the Lord have spoken. Now, David, King David, was long dead. So is God talking about David being resurrected and serving as king in the millennium? Or is this a reference to the promise uh, that David's greater son, Jesus Christ, would be the king? Well, the fact that Jesus Christ will reign over the earth is in practically every prophecy concerning the millennial kingdom. The absolute character of his reign is indicated everywhere. This central prophecy is confirmed by the angel to Mary in announcing the coming birth of Christ in these words, He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Still, there are references to David... The, the, you know, the original David as king in the millennium. Here's a quote that offers a probable solution. The author says, "...in keeping with the prophetic references throughout Scripture, namely that by David is meant the resurrected David who shares with Christ as prince some of the governmental duties of the millennial kingdom, it should be clear from many scriptures that the reign of Christ is shared with others." As William Newell has written, David is not the son of David. Christ, as son of David, will be king, and David, his father after the flesh, will be prince during the millennium. Uh, In the light of many prophecies which promise saints the privilege of reigning with Christ, it would seem most logical that David the king raised from the dead should be given a place of prominence in the Davidic kingdom of the millennial reign of Christ. As indicated in Revelation 19.16, Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. This would certainly imply other rulers. We always talk about ruling and reigning with Christ, and uh, so we expect that Jesus, of course, is the King, but He is the King of kings. And so there will be other rulers during the Millennial Kingdom, and one of them will be David, who will have been resurrected from the dead and so that's a possibility and so really the context of a certain scripture decides is the writer talking about the real literal david resurrected or is he talking about jesus as the greater son of david in this passage that we're in ezekiel because earlier he talked about himself being this shepherd uh... that yahweh god himself would be this shepherd we believe that he's talking about jesus but it is interesting Uh, David will have, uh, in his resurrected body, he will have some function uh, in the kingdom. The remaining verses are clearly millennial. Verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them, cause wild beasts to cease from the land. They will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land. They shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise them up, excuse me, I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles. Now, this is predicting and promising that Israel will be restored and much more. God will rule and reign the millennial earth from a fruitful, beautiful Israel. The times of the Gentiles will be over. Instead of persecuting Jews, Gentiles will be drawn to Israel to worship. And then we finish in verses 30 and 31. Thus uh, they shall know that I, the Lord God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God, you are my flock, the flock of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, says the Lord. God comes out of the metaphor to simply say, you are men, or more properly, you are my people, and I am your God. Some of you like to restore things, uh, you know, whether it's furniture or cars or whatever it might be. There's, there's a whole world of restoration out there. Uh, some things, when restored, I think are even better than they were originally. I mean, and, you know, you know, you look at it and you say, yeah, this is better, it's stronger. Better technology went into restoring this. You know, I'd rather have this now restored than when it was originally built. God is going to restore his people, and it will be better than ever in the millennium. Uh, it, it, it will be a tremendous time. Whenever you come across these millennial passages, uh, it just blows your mind to try and figure out all the wonderful things that God is going to do uh, there on his hill, Jerusalem, uh, and emanating out from that to the rest of the world. It's just going to be awesome.